Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. And here we are, January 1st, 2023. We are exactly 23 years away from the day that all the computer geek thought the world was going to end, right? <laughs> kind of hard to believe that was 23 years ago. I don't know about you, but every year for me, the new year, a birthday, Christmas, just the, the major hallmarks of life, each and every day forces you to ponder the brevity of life. And... and wrestle with the issues of life. And meditate on those things that are most important and evaluating our lives and thinking about whether our lives line up with those realities of what is truly important. You ever do that? Because it's biblical to do that. If we come to our tech today, I want to take just a few quick minutes to just kind of set us in some context, thinking about the big story of the Bible, where we are right now, and the grand story of God's redemption of his people, and what is God's end game, and where are we at in that end game. So very quickly, we read in the scriptures that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God made man in his image. And man was put on this planet to display the glory of God, to exert his rule over his creation. But man rebelled against that in the fall. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 3. And we are plunged into destruction. The world as God made it was done. And the world became a thin, cursed world, a world with suffering, a world with death, a world with hardship, with trials. But as we continue to read in Genesis, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 12. And so we begin to see a picture that God is going to fix what was broken by our sin. What was broken by man's rebellion. That he's going to send a person in the line of Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. And then we proceed to read the rest of Old Testament history. And we see Moses, we see priests, we see kings, we see prophets. And what we learn through all of Old Testament history is we need a better king, we need a better priest, we need a better prophet. All of Old Testament history from Genesis to the end of Malachi points to the fact that we need someone better than who's showed up so far. Amen. And in the gospel, that someone better shows up. the Lord Jesus Christ. 
a better priest, a better prophet, a better king. The creator of all the earth came in human flesh and suffered just like we suffer. Jesus wept because he buried people he loved. Jesus experienced the consequences of living in a world that's ruled by sin and sinners. And he was crucified by sinners because of sin. The three days that Jesus laid in the grave were the three lowest days in all of human history. Were they not? God the Son in the flesh, crucified by wicked men, seemingly destroyed, seemingly conquered. But what happens? Three days later, he's raised to life. And what starts right there is the last days. What starts right there is the beginning of a movement that we would come to know as the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus spends 40 more days on earth and then he ascends into heaven and he tells the disciples, you wait here. You wait here until I send my spirit to you from on high. And once my spirit comes to you, what will happen is you will become my witnesses in this world. You will be my martyrion, my martyrs. And you will spend your life declaring the gospel of God in the flesh, crucified by sinners, but raised to life by the spirit of God. And here it is, he's the firstborn that the Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. That Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. And we are in this age right now. The sole purpose of the age that we live in, in this moment, in all of human history, in all of cosmological history, is this purpose is to build the church of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening right now. Worldwide, Jesus is building his church. And we know from the study of scripture that what's gonna happen is the full number of Gentiles is gonna come in, God's gonna turn his work to Israel, and then, boom, he's back. You see, what happens is when Jesus is done building his church, he's coming back. That's where we are. Jesus will return, we will see him, and those of us who are in Christ will see him and we will become like him with resurrected bodies 
We will reign with him forever in perfect communion with God. We will worship and serve and love our creator and our redeemer in his presence, in an eternal kingdom that will never end and have eternal life, eternal joy, free completely, completely free from sin and its consequences. Is that good news or what? As we come to Colossians, I want to bring your attention to a couple of things. We're going to be in Colossians 3 this morning, but if you could look at Colossians 2 very quickly with me, I want you to see that that Paul is dealing with false teachers in the church of Colossae. Look at 2 verse 4, for example. Paul's writing this letter in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Look at verse 8. Paul warns the Christians in Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to, to Christ. You see, there were people who were trying to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ with earthly philosophies of life. Earthly philosophies of salvation and earthly philosophies and and arguments of ethics. 2.16, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink and or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 2.23, Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on and on and on in details about visions of angels. Look at verse 19. They're puffed up with reason by, sensu- by, by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, that is, to Jesus There were people infiltrating the church that were not holding to Jesus. They were puffed up, full of pride, full of conceit, and they were doing their own thing. Paul says this, these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value. They, are no, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, in false man-made human philosophies and human religion, there's no power. There's no power over sin. There's no power over the flesh. There's no power over this present evil age that we were living in, that we're living in right now. They were pushing a worldview which pushed Christ and his work to the side. Jesus is not sufficient, the false teachers proclaim. The church needed some good man-made religion, some some religion with some extra visions and some more mysteries to make it a little more interesting and a little more exclusive, some human philosophy to make the gospel a little more plausible and a little more palatable to the society around them. Got to mix in a little human work so that there can be some self-exaltation. You ever notice this, that man-made religion always does a great job of sprinkling some of that delicious self-righteousness in there. You ever see that? And here's the big deal I want you to see. The false teachers and their followers in Colossians wanted the Christians to set Christ aside, set Jesus aside, and come back to earth. 
Come back to the world system. Come back to our system. Our way of thinking about life. Our way of doing things. Be earthly again. Now here's something I want to think about before we dig into the text. Why is it always such a temptation? You look throughout church history. Why is it always such a temptation for the church to take on the cultural ethic and the cultural mindset and the cultural philosophy of life in every age? Why? Well, the answer in Colossians is clear. Because if the Colossians are heavenly and they're not like the culture around them, they're going to, be suff- they're going to suffer. They're going to be persecuted. If the Colossians were to be heavenly minded and, and only hold fast to the head that is the Lord Jesus Christ, they were going to have to suffer at the hands of their neighbors. And they were going to have to suffer at the hands of their friends. They were going to have to suffer at the hands of their own family members. But Paul's response is no. You don't need any of this. You don't need any of this man-made religion. You don't need any of this human philosophy. You don't need any of this this stuff that's taught by the spirit, the elemental spirit of this world. You don't need any of it. What you need, everything you need to know, everything you need to have, everything you need for life now, everything you need for the life in the future, everything we need, brothers and sisters, is found in one man. Christ Jesus. And if you look, take a quick survey of Colossians, that's what Paul says all throughout the book. I'm going to read some verses for you. Colossians 1.5, the gospel has come to you. Indeed, it is in the whole world bearing fruit and growing as it does so among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and its truth. That Jesus, in Colossians 1.13, Jesus has delivered us from the do- domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This son, Jesus Christ, in Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God, the creator, the head of the church, the one who holds all things together. He is the fullness. He is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 120, it is through Jesus that God chose to reconcile to himself all things by the blood of his cross. Paul says in 123, you will make it if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering, Colossians 1.24, for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And Jesus, he is the mystery hidden for ages 
in the generations, but has now been revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Paul wants the Christians in Colossians, in Colossae, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, to reach all the riches of the full understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look at verses 9 and 10. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. That is Jesus. Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. In Jesus you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hand by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcised decision of Christ. You have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. God made us alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. In other words, there's going to be people, the culture, the world you live in, family members, friends, neighbors, whatever it is, there's going to be people that are going to try to turn your heart, turn your eyes, turn your mind from the one who is sufficient for all things, and that is Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do that. See, Paul responds to these false teachers by saying Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of everything. All true knowledge is in him. Everything needed for salvation is in Jesus. All true, genuine, real hope is found in him. All real life is found in him. All of our real, eternal needs are met in him. Our victory is in him. He is our life, what our text this morning says. This is the reality of the gospel. That's the doctrine of Colossians. That's what Paul teaches. And that's what Paul wants the church in Colossians to know. Now, if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians 1 through 2, Paul has given his doctrine. Paul has told us, the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Paul has told us what Jesus Christ has done. Paul has opposed the false teachers. Now, he's going to turn to us in light of these truths, in light of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Now, I want you to do this. And here's what I want us to see from the text this morning. Brothers and sisters, Christians must be people who seek after heaven. Christians must be people who seek after heaven. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind 
on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul gives us a condition. He's going to give us two commands. But before he, give us, before he gives us the two commands, he gives us the condition. And the condition is this. If then you have been raised with Christ. What does that mean? Paul is speaking here of regeneration. When God causes a man to be born again. Jesus speaks of being born again in John chapter 3 and says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Paul describing the church in Colossae says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him. Our condition before Jesus is we were alienated and hostile in mind toward God, but now he had reconciled us to himself in the flesh. This is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit where God takes a man that's dead, that has no spiritual life, has no spiritual eyes, has ears that cannot hear, and brings them to life. a supernatural work of the Spirit. The Spirit brings about a spiritual resurrection. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. The person who was once blind to the things of God can now see the things of God. The person that was once deaf to the things of God can now hear the things of God. Paul describes it this way. At one time a veil covered their heart, but now the light of Christ has shone in their hearts and they can see the light of the glory of Christ. This person who was once a citizen of earth has been raised to be a citizen of heaven. And here's what I want you to understand. These are all objective realities. These are things that Jesus does, that God does when he raises a man to life. My friends, are you born again? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? 
Has the Spirit of God shown you the glory of Christ? Notice I didn't say, have you ever said a prayer or did you walk an aisle or have you been going to church your whole life or you work in Sunday school or you give money? I didn't say any of that. I didn't say, did you get baptized? I didn't say that. Have you been born again? See, Paul says in Romans 8 that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ is not in Christ. That's the condition. If, then, you have been born again. If, then, you have been raised with Christ. If these spiritual realities are true of you, are true of me, has the Spirit of God taken you from being someone who belongs in the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved Son? If that is the case, then seek the things that are above. The word seek here is a Greek word, dokeo, and it has to do with desire. It has to do with the idea of searching for and longing for and striving after. The same word that's used in Matthew 6 where, where Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about stuff. Don't be anxious about what you wear, what you're going to eat, all that stuff. Rather, seek first the kingdom of heaven. It's the same word used in another section in Matthew where he says, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon but I honor my father, and, but you dishonor me. And Jesus says this about himself, yet I do not seek my own glory. But there is one who does seek it. This word, this idea of seeking incorporates the hopes and affections of the heart, our longing. You see, the church of Jesus Christ has a completely different standard of what is good, a completely different idea for what is admirable and desirable. The church of Jesus has a different set of hopes and dreams and desires than the culture that we live in. Zoteo, the word that we're looking at here, seek, is a present active imperative. Present meaning it's something that we do now and we keep on doing. Just keep on doing, keep on doing, keep on doing. What are we doing? We're seeking. We just seek, we seek now, and we keep on seeking. It's an active, which means it's something we have to do. We have to exercise our volition. We have to exercise our will and do it. We have to seek. And it's an imperative. What does that mean? That means this is a command. This is not a suggestion. 
Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Paul is saying that to be a Christian that honors God with your life, you and I must seek, strive, long for, look to, keep on seeking the things that are above. We must do this every second of every day until Jesus comes back. What are the things? If you look at the text, it says, seek the thing that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's our hint. The things that we are seeking are there. The things that we're longing for, the things that we're striving after, the things that we're hoping in are there. So what's there? What's there? Our Savior's there. Our bridegroom's there. Our Redeemer's there. The one who holds, who holds the keys to death and Hades is there. Our salvation is there. Our resurrection life is there. Our eternal inheritance is there. Our hope that can never fade is there. Our joy eternal is there. Our eternal peace is there. Our rest is there. Our forgiveness is there. Our amazing grace for all of eternity is there. Our mercy is there. Love unspeakable is there. The bread of life is there. The living water is there. The good shepherd is there. The king of kings and lord of lords is there. Righteousness is there. Perfect justice is there. Perfect holiness is there. Freedom like no freedom we've ever experienced is there. All wisdom, all virtue, all glory, all power, all dominion and majesty in all of heaven and earth is right there. Our life free from sin is there. Our elder brother who has conquered death and is the firstborn from the dead is there. And when this old world is gone, when this world doesn't even exist anymore, right there where Christ is is where we'll be. So we say like Paul, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, is it not? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light and momentary affliction, here it is. 
listen to this, brothers and sisters, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us. How do we look at suffering? We look at suffering as preparation. For what? For an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. My goodness. These light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And listen to what he says. As we look, as we seek, not to the things that are seen. No, no, no. But to the things that are unseen. You see, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here's what Paul would say. Christians, if what we're striving for and what we're looking to and what we're hoping in and what we're seeking after is something we can see with our eyes right now, we're seeking the wrong thing. Look for the things that are unseen. If we move on in the text, look at verse two, it says, set your mind on the things above. Sorry, guys, running nose. Um, set your mind on the thing above. The idea of setting one's mind on something is helpful to, to think of the noun form of this verb, which is mindset. So how do you set your mind? You think in such a way that you have a mindset of heaven. That the way you think is a heavenly mindset. Now you think about this, if any of you have played sports, I know many of you have, the best coaches were able to set the mindset, right? Because the job of a coach is to get you to do stuff you don't want to do so you can accomplish things you do want to accomplish, right? I mean, that's the, the, a good coach is able to help you have a mindset that understands that this moment right here is not what's important. Yes, it's, it's hard. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's demanding. Yes, you're tired. Yes, you want to throw up. Yes, all these different things. But we're not focusing on this. Right? We're focusing on the goal. What we're seeking to attain. What we're seeking to gain. What are we seeking to gain? 
What are we setting our minds on? Paul uses the same exact verb in Romans 8 where he says, do not be like those who live according to the flesh and set their minds on the things of the flesh. But be like those who live according to the Spirit and set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Same words used in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus has just told Peter, he said, listen, here's what's getting ready to go down. I'm about to be arrested. I'm about to be tried. I'm about to be beaten. And I'm about to be crucified. And, and Peter goes, no way, no way, no way, no how. Not under my watch. And listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? Because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See that? Brothers and sisters, this is a conscientious act of the heart and the mind to set our mind on the thing above. The Christian must be a heavenly thinker. Now, why does Paul have to make this command? Let's think about that. This is a good exercise. The reason Paul has to make the command in the Bible that he makes for Christians is because naturally this is not what we would want to do. It is not natural for us to seek the things above. It's natural for us to seek the things here. It is not natural for us to set our minds on the things above. But it is natural for us to set our minds on the things here. Brothers and sisters, this is a Christian discipline. And what's interesting as we look at Colossians, if you look at where he is saying this in relationship to the rest of Colossians, he's, he's getting ready to start telling these believers, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to respond. This is how you need to act. This is how you need to love. This is how you need to forgive. All these different things. And Paul knows, unless your heart is set on the things above, unless you're seeking the things above, unless your mind is set on the things above, you will not be able to do any of it. It's true. You know, Paul prays for Christians. Listen to what Paul prays. He prays that the Father of glory may give you and I a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. That we may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe.
We are believers. We are those who are with unveiled face. 2 Corinthians 3, beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. How do we do this? How do we seek the things of heaven? How do we set our minds on the things of heaven? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's going to be impossible if you don't have your face in your Bible. If we don't have our face in our Bible, if we're not seeing the glories of God in Scripture, if we're not pursuing Christ and his truth, there's no way to set our minds on the things above. Meditating on scripture, meditating on the truth, meditating on the hope that God has made known to us. Do you know, some people talk about how big the Bible is. Do you know that you can read through the Bible audibly in 72 hours? Which means if you're just reading through it, 40 hours, I would encourage you, as I encourage myself, to be a person of the book. We need to be pursuing the Lord in prayer and fasting. Paul says, set your mind on the things of earth, but not, not, on the thing that are on earth. What's that? I'm going to read something here. You turn over to 1 John. Gives us a pretty good idea. First John chapter 2. The apostle says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. What is in the world? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possession. Is not from the Father, but is in the world. Is from the world. Do not love the world. What is it to love the world? It's the lust of the flesh that is the pursuit of pleasure. It is the lust of the eyes that is the pursuit of stuff. And it is the pride of life that is the pursuit of status. This is our world system. This is the system that we live in. We have to understand that. We live in a system that values stuff, that values status, and values pleasure. And Paul says, Christians, you can't seek that.
want to ask a couple questions. How do I know if I am heavenly minded or not? And I'm going to be completely frank with you. Most of you know kind of my situation right now, and I am asking myself these questions. Big time. So I'm not preaching at you, okay? I'm preaching to myself, and you're listening me preach to myself, okay? Am I anxious about the things of this life? Am I a worrier? Am I evangelistic? You see, the reason why we're here, like I said earlier, the only reason we're here is to build the kingdom of heaven. Apart from that, there's no purpose. Am I evangelistic? This is a hard truth, but it's true. If I'm not evangelizing, I'm not a heavenly-minded person. Am I rich toward God? The heavenly-minded person is storing up treasures in heaven. Heavenly-minded people are extravagantly generous. How about this one? Is the hope of my heart the return of Jesus Christ? Here's one I was talking to a friend about here recently. Am I looking for man's approval or for God's approval? Am I hoping for and striving for things that are transient, temporary? Can the things that I'm seeking, looking for, hoping for, can they be lost? Or is the hope of my heart something that cannot be lost? Unshakable, unflinching. Here's one. Am I willing to suffer hardship and difficulties in this life if it means greater glory for God? And greater Christ-likeness in myself. That's a list of questions, isn't it? Let's move on. The text says, set your mind. Sorry. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died. Here's the reason. You have died. See, if you have been made alive in Christ, you have died to this world. That's the truth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That our hope is there. That nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God and Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And here it is, kept in heaven. That the inheritance of the saints is being kept in heaven for us who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. We've died to this world, folks. And we've been made alive to another world. And those of us who've been made alive to another world need to be focused on that world. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When we see him, we will be like him. We will have a body like him, immortal. We will share in his inheritance. We will reign with him forever. We will be free from the stain of sin. We will be in the presence of Almighty God before his throne and live forever. All things, think about this with me. Just dream with me for a second. All things that tether us to this sin-cursed, fallen world will be gone. We will be free. In the presence of God. Paul had this hope. Speaking of his life, he knows he's getting ready to die. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, here it is, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Why is seeking the things of heaven so important? Because number one, the Bible commands it. Number one, the Bible commands it. Number two, because heaven is where true hope lies. God is telling us, God is commanding us through the Apostle Paul to leave behind the trinkets of this world for the real stuff, the substantive stuff, the eternal stuff, stuff that can genuinely satisfy the soul. Our sanctification because those who behold the glory of Jesus are transformed by it. Those who look on Jesus will be chained. Those who seek heaven will grow in Christ's likeness. Number four, the Christian mission, because only those who have been transformed by the glory of God will carry out the mission of Christ. Only those who seek heaven will be willing to suffer and be hated and despised by the systems and the power structures of our world for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. Right? I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Only those who seek the things of heaven will sacrifice their time in this life in the pursuit of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Only heavenly people will reach people of the earth. Only heavenly people will glorify God. Only heavenly people will walk in hope and in peace when all hope is lost. This is the only way Christians will suffer for the glory of God. It's plain as day. I'm going to read one more verse and then I'm going to get down from here. In the book of Acts, 
Stephen is preaching. He is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to his fellow Jews. And you know there were members of his family there. You know there were people from his neighborhood there, people that he'd known all his life. And Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people. That's bold, isn't it? (laughs) You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, talking to these Jews that have crucified Jesus and now persecuting the church. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those announced before, who, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. This righteous one whom you betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when the Jews heard this, they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. How did he do that? How did he have the courage to do that? Listen to this line. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. May we be a people that when we suffer, and brothers and sisters, when we're laying on our deathbed, and we're getting ready to breathe our last, may we be full of the Spirit, able to gaze into heaven and see the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the hope of heaven. Make us people who seek the things of heaven. That gray robe would be a place of heavenly people. That by your grace and power could reach people of this earth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.